Every fan knows the right player in the right position can be a game changer. Put LifeLock between your identity and identity thieves to monitor and alert you to threats you could miss. Plus, with a U.S.-based restoration specialist on your team, you won't have to face drained accounts, fraudulent loans, or other losses from identity theft alone. All backed by the LifeLock Million Dollar Protection Package. Change the game on identity theft. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. Welcome back to the EPL Roundtable. I'm your host, Kevin DeVries, and as always, if you'd like to reach us at the podcast, you can do so by either tweeting us at EPL Roundtable or emailing us at EPLRoundtable at gmail.com. Hi, I'm Jamie Smith. I cover Burnley FC. You can read my stuff on 442, Goal, MSN, etc. Hi, I'm Stephen Clark. I cover Chelsea Football Club for London is Blue and for EPL Index. Awesome. Thanks so much for joining us, Jamie. Glad to have you back. Stephen, Glad to have you back, but listeners may not understand why you're back. It's because probably course, have never heard my voice. <laughs> yeah, but you were on our lost show last week, so apologies uh, to you again and to the people at home who missed uh, some excellent stuff that you share with us there. So glad to have you back. Um, we'll start off uh, with uh, some recent developments in the Premier League. Jamie, you in particular, Burnley played a very good game against Arsenal today. Brighton and Huddersfield uh, held the Manchester clubs in check better than most have this season um with with some of these teams holding top clubs uh, at least close in matches like this do, do we think that the gap that everybody's been saying is widening between the top six and the rest of the league could actually be closing with the talent at the uh quote-unquote lesser clubs getting better and better you know what i'm not sure i'm not sure it is to be honest it's been a lot of talk the last couple of years really that this is happening and i think it's it's been the case that some of the some of the quote lesser unquote clubs have had star players who've sort of elevated them. So we saw this, I think a really good example with this is when West Ham had Dimitri Payet, who was so obviously much better than that club the whole time he was there. He sort of pushed them on so they were then masquerading as sort of top six challengers. Then you take Payet out of that West Ham team, suddenly their bottom half fodder as they are normally so I think you can see that in some of the teams in the Premier League right now a team like Huddersfield for example very workmanlike did very well in the championship last season I think Aaron Moy is probably a lot better than Huddersfield at the moment and I think some of the teams in the bottom half are quite similar to that as far as the gap goes obviously last season there was sort of two big gaps in the Premier League wasn't they after the top six then Everton in their own little mini league table and then another big gap um, and to be honest, I think the table's going to look quite similar this season. Although Michael Burnley have been up there challenging and could have gone fourth if we'd if we'd beaten Arsenal today, I think it's it's inevitable that we slip away at some point. Watford, who were just behind us, they'll slip away at some point. And it's probably going to be the top six at the top six now, a really big gap, and then someone will just be the best of the rest and finish seventh, but a long, long way away. I think for me, the gap, it's it's going to be as big as, as last season, if not bigger. The clubs have got the potential to upset the odds on any given week. We've always seen that in the Premier League. A club like Burnley can get a good result at Old Trafford. They can win at Chelsea. These things can happen as one-offs. But over the course of the whole season, I think you inevitably see the clubs that spend the most money, that have the biggest resources, they tend to come out on top. And as, as, as romantic as a story as, as Leicester City winning the title was, Looks like that's just going to be a once in a lifetime sort of freak event. Leicester were brilliant that season, but there were a lot of mitigating factors. None of the big contenders had good seasons. They really took advantage of it. And fair play to Leicester, they fully deserved the title. They won it easily, but it, it just seemed like a lot of different things, sort of freak happenings, all happened all in one year for that to happen. And I think increasingly you see now that the top six are. They're talking about this new TV deal where they want to start divvying up the money so that it's less fair to the to the lesser clubs in the division. 
And I think you're increasingly going to see them make these decisions that just make it more of a close shop. So it's increasingly difficult for a club like Burnley, a club like Leicester, a club like Watford to just break into that cycle. Yeah, and in short, the, the answer is, is genuinely probably no. The the gap isn't really getting smaller year by year. You've Well, you've got to take into account that this this top six right now is pretty much untouchable. Like from... From kind of Liverpool, Arsenal, Chelsea, Tottenham, and, and the Manchester Cities, no, nobody's nobody's getting in there. Nobody's going to be able to force their way in there. And of course, there are exceptions to the rule because you've got to look at Leicester. You know the miracle that it was, and West Ham got pretty close to finishing in the top four that first Slavin Bilic year. And you know that there's always going to be teams that are close. And Everton, you know, the perennial <laughs> top six, kind of seventh, sixth finishes for for years, but. They, these things do come in cycles. You mentioned before about um, about Dimitri Payet leaving West Ham and then watching the, the club pretty much drop like a rock down down a lake. And I think a similar thing's happening to Everton now with Lukaku. And, you know, you may say that, that Burnley and Watford might fall off this year, which inevitably, you know, they, they're going to drop points. They're going to they're gonna not be able to keep pace with, with Liverpool and with Arsenal and with those kind of clubs. But... You know, I, I think that I think that that seventh place is very much up for grabs this season, and and I think that uh, a lot of teams are gonna are gonna be viably going for it. We're not gonna see Everton finish there. You know, we're not gonna see West Ham, even Southampton are a club that you know have done really well in recent years to get those high finishes, but they're not gonna be there this year. Um, but then once you go past Burnley and Watford, which are the clear exceptions this season, you've got the closest challenges are Brighton on 16 points, which is seven points behind Liverpool. And I just can't see a club, you know, like Brighton or anyone just underneath them making up a seven-point gap already at this point in the season to to breach to breach into that top six. So unfortunately, we're not going to see anything crazy like that this season. I don't feel unless Burnley or Watford could keep up the pace, but. Yeah, it just it just really seems like the the money the money talks in the Premier League. I think a game like ours today is a really good example as well. If if you watch that game blind without knowing anything about either side, it's one of those cliched cup match things. You wouldn't have guessed which was the the big London club with all the money and the mm. the fifty million pound striker or whatever it was they paid for Lacazette. The teams were extremely well matched. Burnley arguably could have won that game. We hit the post. Arsenal had some good chances, obviously, but it was a good contest. But what you saw happen at the end was the kind of decision that the big clubs get. Manchester City got a softish penalty at Huddersfield today and then scored a massively lucky winner. It, these things, the rub of the green seems to go for the, the big clubs. And if not the rub of the green, then outright terrible decisions from referees who just naturally favour the bigger clubs. The penalty that Arsenal got today, can you imagine Burnley getting that at Arsenal? It just would never happen in a million years. Yeah. Yeah, I, I am a little surprised that uh, neither of you think it's it's uh, getting any closer, but time will obviously tell. Just worth noting that at this time during Leicester's title winning season, we were saying that there was no way that they could keep this up. <laughs> um, and, you know, it's entirely possible. I mean, Burnley's setup seems very sustainable. There's nothing crazy that you're doing. You're defending well and then scoring when you get your chances. Unfortunately, it didn't happen today, but still coming. And Watford kind of are like a mini Liverpool where they'll score their goals. It's just can they keep you from scoring yours? Um, I think both will be really interesting to follow through the rest of the season. Uh, unfortunately, Jamie, we are going to touch on this Arsenal match a little bit more. Uh, contentious though it was, and it was, <laughs> um, the win today does put them in the top four. Uh, are we thinking that that's where they'll finish this season? Do we think they could uh, knock one of these Champions League spots come the end of the year? I think they've got every chance. Um, I've not been that impressed with Arsenal this season, to be honest. Um, today was only their second away win of the season. I think the other one was Everton. That doesn't really count, I don't think. Beating Everton at the moment, not, you shouldn't get any <laughs> points for that. Um, but yeah, I think it's going to be tight, to be honest, the top six. Arsenal seem to be balancing the Europa League quite well. I thought they were going to find it difficult, the games after the Europa League matches especially. So having to go to Cologne on Thursday night and then coming to Burnley, I thought that was a really good opportunity for us. And I think it told a bit in their play that they seemed a bit leggy, even though they made a lot of changes to that European game. I think when you're playing twice a week, it does take a toll. But they seem to be managing it okay so far. Um Obviously, the the rest of the teams in that top six are all playing Champions League football as well, aren't they? So everyone's got the same problem in that they're playing twice a week. 
Um, I don't think Arsenal have got anything more than anyone else in the top six. I think it, it's going to be close. It'll come down to various things. I think keeping Sanchez and Ozil happy and focused is going to be a, a real challenge with the, the contract situation and obviously constant transfer speculation about Sanchez in particular. Um, and I wouldn't be surprised if he left in January, to be honest. So how they manage that situation is going to be their biggest challenge, um, I think. But the, the places are up for grabs. Obviously, Liverpool very poor at the back. Spurs have got the the Wembley problem, seems to be an issue that they're not coping with very well this season. Um, the Manchester clubs, I think, will definitely be in the top four. But I think that it is up for grabs, but Arsenal just have that that sort of flakiness for me, and it it'll probably get to February the same as it does most years, and then it'll all fall apart for them. So if I had to bet on it, I would bet on them missing out at the moment. Yeah, it's 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 really so tight for those those last two positions in the top four because at the moment you've got to say that the Manchester clubs are probably definitely going to make the top four. So that leaves two positions for four clubs that all viably would argue that they are strong enough to to make the top four clearly. With Arsenal, with Arsenal, it's so complicated because obviously there's the the contract deals that we just don't know what's going to happen. Both those players, Sanchez and Ozil, could easily leave in in the January window, but then they could they could easily also stay and and just leave on free transfers. So, I mean, working under the assumption that they're going to stay, that front three on their day can take part in any defense in the league. Their defense and also their their own defense looks like it's been improving in recent weeks. With Mustafi in particular looking like he's in an excellent vein of form. The questions for me with Arsenal are in regards to midfield and the management of the midfield. It seems Wenger's midfield at Arsenal has kind of only two settings. The first is attacking, you know, with Shaka and Ramsey. They seem to really struggle getting back and to kind of um, hold on to leads in games. And then they also have a really defensive setup with Elneny and Coughlin. And when they play those two guys, there just seems to be no link between the midfield and attack. So I think Wenger's really got to figure that out because you can't, especially with teams this season, seem to be playing three in the midfield a lot more than than we've been seeing in recent years. And I really think with a three in midfield against any of those two Arsenal setups, I'm just going to wipe the floor with that midfield. So it, it, with Arsenal, again, but then you'd say that, that that Spurs performance was proof of the fact that the Arsenal midfield was very strong and you know won a lot of, won a lot of tackles and was, their passing was great. So it really, really depends with Arsenal if they're up for it or not. But if you ask me right now if they make the top four, I'd, I'd say no. I think this is it's the mentality thing with Arsenal, isn't it? They managed to get themselves up for, for the Spurs game last week. Obviously, the big derby. There was the whole revenge thing and the Spurs finished above them last season for the first time in. I'm sure Kev will be able to say, but a long time. But I won't. <laughs> <laughs> I just wiped the number off of your memory. Um, so I think they lifted themselves to that game. But you see time and time again in the games where you'd expect them to win easily, it just doesn't happen. They don't seem to motivate themselves. They just assume that all they have to do is turn up and they'll win the game. And when the chips are down, I, I just don't fancy Arsenal to get the job done. I think the, the other teams around them have maybe got a bit more grit and determination. It's, it's a very Arsenal thing to say about the team, but they've got a bit of a soft belly for me. And I think teams will exploit that as the season goes on. Yeah, although, as you mentioned, uh, referee decisions do tend to fall their way to make up for that at times. Um, well, we do against us. That's three games <laughs> in a row. Three games in a row. Yeah, me saying it can be biased. You saying it, it's pretty much just factual at this point. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I think Arsenal will struggle to to break the top four, if I'm honest. I, I think, unfortunately, we've seen Chelsea's struggles this season, and I think they're behind them. I think they're really going to push on well. And then it's you know three teams for one spot for me. Um, between us, Liverpool, and Arsenal. Uh, I think Liverpool have the biggest flaw in that their defense is just a shambles, whether or not they can address that in January, and whether or not addressing it in January will fix it within a reasonable enough amount of time to make sure that they can really push on late will be interesting. But they also have Mohamed Salah, who is just determined to score the most goals um, of any incoming Liverpool player. So well, this, this, this is it with Liverpool, isn't it? Salah's proved that he's been the signing of the season so far mm-hmm. and he's scoring seems like every week and they're sixth in the league because yep. they can't defend and I, I don't think and they did it again because they did it with Mane last year 
Yeah, exactly. But I don't think going out and buying Virgil van Dijk, which they're desperate to do, I don't think that's going to be a, a big sticking plaster. My just theory is everything. that their scouting department only knows of one center back, and it is Virgil van Dijk. And but one I, club. I think it's a systemic thing. I, I don't think put, van Dijk would be a better center back than any of their center backs. Yes. But I don't think they defend well as a team. They don't protect the defense at all. Mm-hmm. So whoever's in that back three, back four, whatever the system they're playing, they're always going to come under a massive amount of pressure. The goalkeeper behind them doesn't matter which one they've picked because they're both rubbish. So you've got the pressure of nothing in front of you, nothing behind you. You can be the best centre-back in the world, but you're always going to struggle under those conditions. And that's why Liverpool are going to find it tough for me until they find a way to defend better as a whole team. Yeah, I think that's a great yeah, point. We- and uh, speaking of not really protecting them, have, has anybody thought that Southampton have been particularly good defensively since Van Dijk has come back? <laughs> They've only kept one clean sheet since he's come nope. back. And didn't Liverpool beat Southampton 3-0 the other week or something? So <laughs> they did. To say that Van Dijk's the defender they need and is going to make all the difference, for me, it's, it's just it's just not true. It, he'll improve yeah. the defence, but it's not going to magically make them be able to keep clean sheets in the big games on a regular basis. Mm. Yeah, I heard some Liverpool fans talking about they watching that Southampton game and they were saying, oh, but Van Dijk was winning all the headers. Well, I mean, yeah, but he didn't stop three goals going in the back of his net. That's not, <laughs> you know, it's not exactly going to help your defence. But yeah, with Liverpool also, I mean, obviously the defence gets a lot of attention because they so often lead to goal-scoring mistakes. But for me also, it's kind of a little similar thing to Arsenal. I think I think their, their midfield is really, really kind of, weak at times like there's no other word really to say I think Jordan Henderson misplaces far too many passes to be in a top six club playing every week especially as a captain I don't I don't mm. think he's the kind of leader that Liverpool fans are used to and people like Emre Chan I his contract's up in six months I don't think his heart's really in it um Coutinho you know I think his eyes been kind of moved on to Barcelona already I I just can't see for example okay this is obviously going to come across a little bit biased as a Chelsea <laughs> fan, but where is where like they're buying in Naby Keita? I think that's a perfect move for them coming in next year. Like, where is their Kante? Where where is a lot of these teams? Obviously, Kante is an incredible player and he's hard to come by. But where are these where are these players that that give everything and play cons- give you a consistent six or six or seven or eight every week? Mm-hmm. And with Liverpool, I just don't see that. Yeah, it's just they have enough flair players that. Yeah. It makes it up at the, at the goal mouth, but it doesn't defensively. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, I think it's a really good point. And there have been lots of good defensive midfielders available in recent years, and it has never seemed to be their pick. Although I do think Emery Chan, when he was purchased, that was supposed to be the development plan for him. Mm-hmm. But then he was so good, kind of in a more box to box role, that they decided to push him up a little bit in the formation. Um, we are going to take a quick break, and then we'll be back with uh, questions for each of our guests. All right, and we are back. Uh, Going to jump in with Jamie here, keeping talking with Burnley, which we've done a fair bit of already. Uh, but interested uh, about Burnley, there was a comment on the American broadcast of the match today. You know, I'm American. I hope that's not a surprise to anyone at this at this stage. No, but I know it's crazy. <laughs> um, uh, but they mentioned that Pochettino spoke with Sean Dyche uh, about how he turned a club that so many people, people thought would potentially be relegation fodder uh, up to as high as they are right now, just outside that top six as we opened the show talking about. And I think that's a really interesting question because obviously we we talked Michael Keane to death. Early on this season, we realized that. Then we started talking about Tarkovsky and me. Tarkovsky, who I think did a very good job uh, today, aside from apparently the issue late on. But um, what what do you think it is? Is it just Dyche's development as a manager? Because he is a younger manager. Do you think he's just started figuring things out more? It already seemed like you had team cohesion, so it's like all of a sudden things clicked in that sense. Just very interested to hear your thoughts on why Burnley have developed so well. I think it's a, a few things, really. I think the players are a bit better. Obviously, we lost Keane, and there was a lot of talk about how that would affect us, but Sarkovsky's been just as good. As keen, so that's not really been that much of a problem. Jack Cork at the back of midfield has done an absolutely fantastic job. Obviously, he'd been on loan here before. We knew what he was all about. He didn't seem wanted at Swansea, even though he was their captain for a lot of last season. And 
he, he seemed undervalued to me. There were a lot of Swansea fans felt that they'd got a fantastic deal when we paid ten million for him, but in this market, ten million for a player who's got so much experience in the Premier League was an absolute bargain. He's been fantastic for us. Um and I think we're going for it a bit more this season as well. Last season we tended to have at least one defensive winger, if not two. Um whereas Dash has been very clear this season that Brady's gonna start whenever he's available. Goodmanson's in the team now as well. They're two two wingers who are gonna get forward as much as they can. Um but I think both wingers have had to learn the dash way, which is you run hard, you do your defensive duty first. Um, but I think they've got the balance right now in that they do that and they protect their fullbacks, but they also get forward and threaten. So on the break, I think we're a very dangerous proposition because of that pace that we've got out wide now. Um, but as well, I think the team's just defensively very solid. Um, a lot of people struggle to, to sort of explain how this happens. I, I read a really interesting piece from Rory Smith in the, the New York Times over the weekend. Um, you can tell that we're flying at the moment because we're getting whole articles about it in the New York Times. Um, but the whole idea behind the piece was trying to explain it through data. And as as much data as there is to analyse the football now, it still doesn't explain Burnley because you look at expected goals, which is the new thing now. All the figures seem to show that we're massively outperforming. And when that's happening, it normally comes down to luck. The argument that was being made is all the stats show that they're getting a bit lucky, to be honest. But the stats can only measure performance so far, I think. And the way Burnley defend, it's so that we make the box, so that we make the clearances. So those statistics might show that we're under a lot of pressure, but those blocks are happening because we deny team space and they shoot from distance because they get frustrated and there's no space. So the team is provoking the opposition to do that so that we make the blocks and clearances. So this doesn't really show in the data. Um, I don't have a much better explanation. If I did, then... I'm sure opposition managers would have an explanation that could counter it as well and come up with a better plan. But it seems to me that the system works perfectly for the personnel. I think we are being a bit more ambitious this season with the wide players. And the style of football that we play as well, we're keeping the ball on the floor a lot more. Um, some of the goals we scored this season demonstrate this perfectly. The Everton goal, I think, was 24 passes. Um, if Man City scored that goal, people would probably talk about it for months. Um, Burnley score it to win a game at Everton and people just go oh Burnley did a goal where they did some passes oh well done Burnley they're not just facing up field anymore um, but we've been doing that a lot more this season against Arsenal today we use the long ball sparingly um, and I think it, it, it will take time for people to realise that the style of football has changed at Burnley but for me we mix it up really well we go along when we have to we keep it on the floor when we need to I think the balance is just much better this season. And for me, it's the stability as well that Dash brings to the club. Obviously, he's been here over five years now. The anniversary was quite recently. All the players know their jobs. Dash has got everyone drilled extremely well. Defensively, again, the positioning is always perfect. Um, when we concede a goal like today, it's an individual mistake, really, from Tarkovsky. He shouldn't put his hands on Aaron Ramsey. But also, it's not really a penalty. So... Um, these sort of margins, I think, can still make the difference. Whether we can maintain what we've been doing for the whole season without the opposition working out a way to combat our strengths, that's going to be what's really interesting. Whether the players that we've been seeing perform to a very high level all season, players like Nick Pope, who've come in and done fantastically well, despite not really being expected to do that, filling in for Tom Heaton, whether he can keep that up it's going to be questionable whether Tarkovsky can do it for a whole season, whereas he's only played the odd game every now and again. That's going to be really interesting. So there's a few things to keep an eye on, but it's just going very, very smoothly at the moment. And I think I've said this on the show before, but I can't really understand why. I'm glad they haven't, but I can't understand why Everson haven't been banging down the door to get Sean Dash because he seems like a perfect fit for me. Yeah, that is very strange. You you brought up something that I did want to follow up on, though, which is uh, Tom Heaton. Obviously, Pope has done incredibly well since coming in. When Heaton comes back, does he just automatically get his job back? Or do you think there there would be some uh, competition there? 
I think it, it's it's a valid question, but Tom Heaton's the club captain. He's been seen as being one of our best players for the last three, four seasons. So, um, as well as Nick Pope's done, I do think it will be a case of he's the understudy. Um, what it does mean is that we don't have to rush Heaton back. He can play some under-23 games or whatever to get his fitness up. He might even be on the bench for a game or two. Um but I do think as soon as he's sort of 100%, he will be back in. At the end of the day, Tom Heaton's an England international. He's proven himself to be one of the best goalkeepers in the Premier League in the last two or three seasons. So um, the competition's good. Uh, in the medium term, we do have two very good goalkeepers that we're not going to be able to keep both happy. I think Pope, having had a taste of Premier League football, he's going to want to play regular football again. Whether he's done enough in these few games to get snapped up by somebody... I think that remains to be seen, but there's been talk about Heaton leaving before. And if teams were interested in him, then we've got the option of selling and we've got a very capable player ready to step up. So I think it's an interesting one. There's a lot of Burnley fans been asking this question about what happens when Heaton comes back in, but I think it's it's a fairly straightforward decision, to be honest, as brilliant as Nick Pope has been. Mm. Yeah, sounds it's like potentially... Jamie. Oh, sorry, what did you say? Oh, sorry, I was just going to ask Jamie... Uh, Last last year, everyone was obviously bigging up Michael Keane, and you know he's he's he struggled at Everton, albeit not not really his fault <laughs> over there. But um, I this just makes me think: has has have people overlooked Ben Mee a bit? Yeah, maybe. I mean, he, I think Ben Mee is, is sort of underrated everywhere apart from at Burnley. Um, but <laughs> some Burnley fans overrate Ben Mee, I think. It's, it's really strange. Last season, you'd, there was a lot of fans who would argue me was better than Keane. Um, and you could say, looking at the team now, me's still there, Keane's gone, and Everton are terrible. You could say that it's been proven to be the case. Um, for me, I think Keane has more facets to his game. He's much more comfortable on the ball. His distribution's a lot better. He's got more pace. Um, in terms of pure defending, blocking, clearing, heading, being in the right place, Ben Mee's fantastic. Um, there was some talk, actually, that West Brom wanted to buy him, I think, in the summer and also last January. I think that's really telling that it was West Brom under Tony Pulis that wanted him, a manager that's always valued very highly the pure defending, you block it, you head it, you boot it. Um, so <laughs> I don't think he's a player that's ever going to get attention at a bigger club. The reason that Keane went was that he just looked like a high-class defender. He carries the ball extremely well. He reads the game extremely well. So he has those qualities that the higher clubs um, value a bit more than a, a block it, head it, kick it. So, yeah, I think we're quite happy with Ben Me as it is. He sort of goes under the radar a little bit. Um, but I think he's a really good fit for the club as well. And he's captained in the absence of Tom Heaton and he seems like a natural fit for that role. So it's it's interesting to see if he, if he sees himself as being able to, to go on and do more. But... I don't think he has that extra stuff to his game that would make a top six club look at him and go, you know what, Ben Mee would fit in really well. But that said, look at Liverpool's defence. We talked about Virgil van Dijk. <laughs> yeah. Ben Mee would improve Liverpool's defence. So sometimes the basics are just what you need to do well, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, also, Ben Mee, very highly regarded in fantasy circles because he picks up bonus points <laughs> constantly. Yeah. Um, <laughs> All right, uh, coming to you now, Stephen, talking about Chelsea. Uh, I want to bring up something that we actually discussed last week again uh, before we lost that show, but I thought it was important for people to hear. Uh, a lot of neutrals have heard uh, or read reports that either Morata's unhappy and wants to leave for either Italy or Spain or that Conte plans on not being in England very long. Uh, as a Chelsea fan, do you buy into this at all? And if not, how frustrating is it that this is being kind of propagated uh, throughout media? Yeah, I mean, the, just to touch on that, Conte and Alvaro Morata and the media stuff, it, it's it's very frustrating. I mean, obviously, as a as a big club, and you know, we obviously get a lot of media attention all the time. And with Chelsea, it's quite obvious to everyone that we haven't had the best history with keeping managers over a long period of time. But with Antonio Conte, it's it's really just been from from the get go. It seems like the the press has been trying to run him out of England. It's it and it just it ba- it baffles normal Chelsea fans because you know from from what we hear from the club and what we hear from Antonio himself and from 
you know, people close to him, close to his family. From all accounts, he's he's never really had any issues living in London. The only issues that have been truthful, to be honest, are the ones about his family who lived over in Italy last season. As a lot of people know, it's pretty well documented. But now they've come over this this year to, to live, which is, to me, a clear indication that he thinks that he's going to be staying, probably not in the long term. He's I don't think a Chelsea manager is really realistically ever going to last kind of five, six years. But I, I definitely think he's eased out to the end of this season and probably to the end of next season, you know, unless something catastrophic happens. But, you know, all Chelsea fans are extremely happy with him. And it, it is really frustrating to see these kind of links come out kind of unfounded at times because, yeah, it's, it's just unequivocally not true. And the Alvaro Morata ones just make me furious because – the suggestions that he wanted to go back to Italy and back to Spain already after only being at the club for, you know, what is it, like four months now is just just ridiculous. Morata has been excellent so far. One of our standout players this season, been involved in more goals in his first 12 games for Chelsea than any other player in Premier League history. And we're, we're extremely happy with him. The fans love him. You know, the club is loving life right now with Alvaro Morata and Antonio Conte and to be honest the media can say all they want but I I there are there are not as many problems at Chelsea as the media would have a lot of football fans believe uh interesting one of those narratives for a long time have been Chelsea although largely they blame Jose Mourinho's uh inability or unwillingness to bring through youth uh, saw a fun stat today that Andreas Christensen is the first academy product to play and finish three consecutive uh, Premier League matches. That is obviously not great, but he did keep two clean sheets in those. I was saying for years I didn't know why you let him linger so long at Mönchengladbach when he could have improved you immediately. We have seen that ever since he's come back. Uh, just how good do you think Christensen could be? Yeah, it's it's gonna it's gonna sound a little biased from a Chelsea fan saying this right now, but. Unless you've seen Andreas Christensen play, you you really don't understand how good this kid is. At, at his age, it's it's unbelievable. Uh, uh, he, he's he's definitely at the level of John Stones as a ball playing centre back right now. For me, for me, he's a future top five centre back in the world. I honestly think he's at that level. His composure is so good. I've and what what's really been really been attractive to me as a fan to watch him play over and over again this season is that. He, with every game, he gains so much more confidence. He is, in the Liverpool game, for example, he was doing things that I hadn't seen him do yet. He was testing out new things. And to see him kind of explore, you know, his, his game on the pitch is really exciting for Chelsea fans. He was, he's been driving into the other team's half, which, you know, for centre-backs is pretty rare. And, you know, he's playing these forward passes. And when he does that, it really, it really allows the team to get forward more, allows the midfield to press on. And for Hazard and Morata to, you know, find those spaces and get behind the defense. And, you know, with Angola Kante behind him, he's obviously got the, the confidence to go do that. But, you know, it's it's really it's really good for Chelsea fans to see, a, a, you know, a, an academy player, whether, you know, he's English or not, come through the club because we've obviously been crying out for it for years. And, you know, to the to the club, to the club's detriment, we we haven't really seen anyone come through. I mean, <laughs> I mean, just if you look around the league, you see all these great players that you know Chelsea have kind of nurtured and brought through, and then they just don't make they don't make the grade, you know. And a lot of Chelsea fans would have you believe that these players are good enough. They're certainly good enough. They've got the talent, but those kind of years between eighteen and twenty one, twenty two, they're they're the lost years for these guys. They don't they don't kind of seem to get the first team games that they need. Deli Ali is a great example. Obviously, not a Chelsea player, but he's a play he's a young player who. He got the games really young, and you know he made that step. He he was able to make that step up. I'm really excited for people like Loftus Cheek, who I think is finally getting these games. You know he went years without getting these these Premier League games. He could have been playing Premier League football at 18, 19, um, 20. You know now he's I think he's 21, 22, maybe even this year. And it's just it seems almost too late, but he's kind of right on the fringe area and. I mean, for example, the, the Premier League is littered with Chelsea with Chelsea youth players and Chelsea academy players. I mean, even at Burnley, Burnley you've got Jack Cork, Chelsea academy player. <laughs> you know, they're, they're just kind of scattered out everywhere. And uh, it, it, it's really great to see, see one start to come through. I really rate Andreas Christensen extremely highly. Yeah, it is worth noting that 
uh, Christensen being the one that broke through is not surprising as he's always looked like he was going to be yeah. a very, very good center back. And it, credit to him for becoming one. Um, actually, it's a really interesting time for young center backs because you, you mentioned John Stones, who I have never been particularly high on, but he has taken a very big step forward this season. You have Christensen at Chelsea, biased here. Uh, Davinson Sanchez, who I thought was going to be good in two years, but has just decided he's going to be just as good uh, for us now. Um, if you're a fan of really high-level young center back play, uh, the Premier League quickly becoming a hotbed of it. Uh, do either of you have any questions for a Tottenham fan who has watched two very disappointing Premier League matches in a row? Uh, yeah, are you still blaming the Wembley thing on the pitch not being big <laughs> enough or being too big or whatever it was? <sighs> yeah, here's the here's the thing. I, I mentioned this, uh, I think, after the Arsenal match. Um, but... I've been trying to discount the whole Wembley theory since it began, and I'm just giving up on fighting it. It's weird, it's so strange, and it didn't follow us into the Champions League as we beat uh, Real Madrid and Borussia Dortmund at Wembley. So it's not like we don't understand what it is. I think that does, kind of to your joking point there, negate the um, pitch size as being the issue. I think to an extent, a lot of clubs are... Man, I hate I hate venturing this far away from statistics or anything like that. But I think a big part of it is that teams are getting to go play at Wembley. Like obviously, some of the big clubs are used to going there. Yeah, yeah um, Obviously, I mean, promoted West, teams have West played Brom at Wembley. Played there. West Brom mm. hadn't played there in fifteen years or something. Had yeah. they? So it was a big game for them. Yeah, exactly. I, I think people are just coming in a little bit more <laughs> hype than usual. Uh, to use a very professional term there. Um, and I, I, yes, there is something in our heads about it now. If there wasn't at the start of the season, there certainly has to be now when you look at the points we've dropped. Obviously, uh, no offense to Burnley, but dropping points to them. We've dropped points to Swansea there. We dropped points to West Brom. We lost big matches against Chelsea and Arsenal, who are obviously London rivals. Uh, things have just not gone well. And a lot of it's been the nature that it's happened. I mean, the uh, Chelsea, their last goal came very late. Um, just weren't able to do anything against Swansea somehow. Um, and then the Arsenal one, they just ran away with. The West Brom one, I don't know if you guys saw the goal, but just how is mm. that a goal? How, how, do, <laughs> how does nobody stop that? How does Hugo not shade that way? How does Davinson not get a foot on the ball when he's looking to clear it? Um, <laughs> after I just praised him about being a good young center back. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I just think... It may have been luck that was going against us in the beginning, but now I do think there is a tangible factor of us being a little more gun-shy uh, at the ground while others are starting to get more and more confidence. Because if you're going into a match against Tottenham at Wembley, knowing all of this, are you going to be yeah, scared of facing them there? it becomes a thing, doesn't it, as well? I mean, Yeah, and, and we saw this happen at United as basically the second Sir Alex left, is nobody was afraid of playing United anymore after decades of being worried about playing United. Right, and, and I think we were getting there. We were building that up, especially after last season where we didn't lose at home all season. We were starting to build right. up that reputation and that fear in opponents, and I think we have very quickly lost that. And I, you know, there, there there are loads of factors at play here, but I, I think those could be just some of them. But I guess the main point here is I'm not arguing that there isn't a Wembley thing anymore. There clearly is a Wembley thing, and you could pick any one of very many narratives as to why it's happening. Yeah, Kev, I was just also going to quickly ask you, what what is really going on with Danny Rose? Goodness. Uh, He's a bad guy. I'm going to be honest. If you yeah. asked Danny Rose, I'm still not sure you could believe that. I, I feel like in, in uh, <laughs> writing uh, and in literature, a lot of times you have something called the unreliable narrator where you can't trust the voice of the book. And I feel like that's Danny Rose's internal monologue. Um, he, he, oh, my God. It is so so frustrating and he's really picked a bad time to do it as ben davis is playing really really well um unless he wants to leave if he if he wants to leave he's doing a great job by just constantly antagonizing anybody or and everybody keeping his name in the press constantly making potch have to answer questions every week about what's danny rose thinking this week um potch tried an interesting tactic don't know if it's true or not um where uh, they asked him about the most recent Danny Rose outburst about how he was furious to not play the North London Derby which uh, I think only really blew up because we didn't beat Arsenal I think it's a much easier narrative if you, if you lose it um and then all of a sudden after Potch complaining about Rose always talking to the press this time he was like I love that enthusiasm you want every player to want to play every match 
I was like, okay, let's let's try this narrative for a few weeks. See how this goes, Potch. Um, yeah, I I think he is uh, going to not be at Tottenham next season, if I'm honest. I think we could very much do what we did with Serge Aurier. I think we could sell Danny Rose, England International, et cetera, et cetera, for 40 million plus and find somebody younger and more innately talented for less. And if there's anything that Mauricio Pochettino can hang his hat on at the end of the day, it's the fact that he turns anyone into a really good wingback and he takes talented wingbacks and turns them into some of the best in the league. Um, if you look like, like England call-ups, just across the board, uh, Chelsea product, though, as you mentioned, Ryan Bertrand. Obviously, he had a touch on uh, Luke Shaw. Uh, <laughs> then, obviously, Rose, Walker, Trippier, who, no offense to his Burnley time, but obviously has taken a big step for us uh, since joining. He's very good at getting the most out of wingbacks, and I think we could easily, just like we did with Walker, we sold him for 50, we bought Aurier for 23. And he's obviously a project, but he'll be developed very well and is one of the best talents at that position in the world. I think we could just do the same thing again at the left and reduce a locker room issue, dressing room issue, uh, English parlance, if you'd like. Um, but yeah, no, I, I, I don't know if he wants to stay. My assumption is that he doesn't, but I think the the end line here will be that Danny Rose will play for somebody else next season. He's definitely trying to leave. I think. I think he's seen Walker get his move and double, treble his wages, whatever it is. It's becoming an issue. And head back north, which I think is a uh, a very underreported factor here. Yeah, I think that's true. Uh, But his comments about Spurs underpaying, I think they're going to become a a bigger and bigger problem, Um, especially if you you do let Rose go and everyone sees how much he makes more than he does now if he goes to Man United or wherever. Mm -hmm. Then someone like Deli Alley might be thinking, well... People keep linking me with Real Madrid. I should be earning 150, 200,000 pounds a week. Give me that money. I know Kane keeps saying he wants to stay at Spurs for his whole career, but you need to be paying Harry Kane top whack with the, the top strikes in the world because he's in that bracket now. And how Spurs balance that and keeping all these players happy on what in Premier League terms are not big wages these days. I think that's going to be really interesting in the next couple of years. Yeah, I mean, yeah. to take it back to the beginning, uh, I think Stephen mentioned that you know it kind of follows money, the table, and mm-hmm. we're sixth in wages paid, um, and we're not particularly close to the likes of Arsenal or Liverpool um, because we currently have no earners over a hundred thousand. Kane's the only one that can even get above it with incentives, uh, one of which is the Golden Boot, which he seems to have a knack for winning. Um, I do agree with that. the The internal line on that is. When the stadium comes, the big contracts will come. Uh, and we've convinced many of our players to just kind of deal with it until then. I think Rose doesn't want to deal with it until then. And you mentioned Della Ali. And I do think that money's a little bit on his mind. And that could be one of the reasons why he's struggling as much as, as he is. Um, <laughs> did see an a article about Della Ali's sophomore slump. Apparently unaware that last year was his sophomore season. Um, <laughs> but uh, I do think to an extent people are starting to figure him out. His temperament's getting to him a bit more, but um, the 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 upside that Della Ali has every match is untouchable. He can do nothing, like we <laughs> largely saw against West Brom, but still has what ended up being a point-saving assist. Um, actually, actually I, I'd be really interested to talk to you about this. I was talking to somebody about this over Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving to all, all the Americans here that listen. Um, <clears throat> about if you would rather have a consistent player... You, you referenced Conte earlier, Stephen. A, a player yeah. that consistently puts in somewhere between 6 and 8 out of 10s or a player that can put in a 9 or a 10 and just be a pure match winner for you? I, th- yeah, well, I think you can... Sorry, I, I think you can carry one or two maybe of those players, but you can't have too many in the team because if they're all off on the same day, then you'll lose the game. Um, and I think it depends on the club as well. Burnley don't really have those players because... Our system depends very much on everyone doing their job perfectly all the time. So if you've got someone who's going to switch off and not do that, that doesn't work. Um, if you set the team up so that you can have one of these star players, and I think Spurs have got two because I think Ericsson is the same. Ericsson yeah. can win games on his own, but he also does nothing at all sometimes. Um, so I think that's maybe what's happened a bit this season as well, that Ali's not been in great form, Ericsson's been a bit hot and cold. Um, and if that happens at the same time, then that's your two main creative players not creating. Um, so, yeah, I think I, I would love to have someone who can do that score hat tricks. But realistically, for Burnley, 
it wouldn't work because if you have someone who's not not hitting a minimum level, and I'd say like a seven's minimum level, if someone's not doing that, everyone else has to work harder. And I think the whole pack of cards just sort of falls apart if that happens. But if you're higher up, I think you've got more leeway to to handle that sort of talent. Yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd argue that, that every club kind of has their own philosophy on it. You know, for Chelsea, we we have a lot of these kind of players that are just consistent, so consistent. I Cesar Azpilicueta, in my opinion, is the bargain of the last, like, five years of the Premier League. Seven million euros for Azpilicueta is unbelievable. And, you know, he, he, he's just one of the kind of these guys. And Matic was him, was that kind of guy for us as well. And, you know, Kante is kind of, you know, he's probably a bit above that, but he's kind of at that level where just you get the consistent players in your midfield, in your defense, and then you kind of get these these flare guys that, you know, they can have an off game. For us, it's people like Willian and Pedro. You know, we spoke about Willian a little bit before the pod, Kevin, and how he's kind of flattest to deceive sometimes. But, you know, you get you get these you get the consistent players in your team. You get you get a system going where these guys they give you they give you a solid performance every game. You know they're not going to, you know, likely make a mistake. You know they're going to they give it their all. And then you get your fair, your flair players up top, and you know whether they perform or not, kind of, it 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 decides the game. But as long as you have those consistent players at the back and in your midfield, for me, that's the best way to go about it. Um, actually, let's just kind of follow through with that thought into <clears throat> player watch. Who is the most consistent player at your team right now? Uh, yeah, I talked a bit about Jack Cork earlier in the program, and I think he's exactly that sort of 7 out of 10, back in the midfield, does the basics. He's never going to have a game where he gives the ball away constantly. Um, so he certainly does that. And we talked about Ben Mee as well. Um, so I'm trying not to cover the same ground that we've already done. Um, so for that reason, I want to pick out Stephen Ward for this. Um, I was talking to a Leeds fan at work, actually, who was couldn't understand why Charlie Taylor's not got in the team yet. I think the reason for that is that Ward is Mr. Consistency. Um, he's seen off a few left-backs already at the club, and generally, you know exactly what you're going to get from Stephen Ward. He's not brilliant going forward, but he's solid at the back, holds his position very well, and fits in with our back four very well, which is the most important thing. Um, ironically, for Ireland against Denmark, when Christian Eriksen did one of these yeah. match-winning things, Stephen Ward had an absolute nightmare kind of undermining my point, but he doesn't do that for us. He's never done that for us. Um, and I think the way I almost set up didn't really suit Stephen Ward. There was far too many gaps at the back um, that meant that his lack of pace was a bit more obvious. I think we cover that quite well because we defend a lot deeper. Um, but I've been a massive fan of Stephen Ward since he came into the club. I think his, his qualities are really underrated, even among Burnley fans now when he's been first-choice left-back for three, four seasons. Um, and done a fantastic job. The point that I made to the Leeds fan was that a player like Charlie Taylor is someone who would add to the team when we are looking to move on to that next level. So in the same way that Brady's now a, a mandatory pick, Goodmanson's making the same case on the wing. When we are ready to add that sort of extra creativity and a bit more flair to the back line, um, someone like Taylor would then probably come in for Stephen Ward. But at the moment solidity and having a set-up back line is so important to us that that's not really going to happen. I can see a situation at some point where you might play Taylor for a home game against a team near the bottom of the table and say to him, go and play your game, get up and down the wing, don't worry too much about your defending, um, just play your natural game. But I think at the moment, Taylor's got to learn the dash way to do it, which is do the defending first. So until that happens, I think Ward will be safe in his place. I think you were talking about me being a fantasy pick earlier. I think Stephen Ward's been right up there. He's certainly got a lot of points for me. So, yep, best uh, points per yeah. million in the official game Ste- right now. Stephen Ward's been fantastic for me, and I hope it continues because I've been right there from the start saying how brilliant he is. So <laughs> every good performance <laughs> that he puts in, it's a tick in the box that says, I know what I'm talking about, which is always nice to do. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I mean, for, for Chelsea, it's it's it. The obvious choice would be N'Golo Kante. I mean, every everyone everyone is pretty plainly obvious to see how how really good he is, and you can see in our team with or without him how we play and the massive difference it makes. But for me, the diamond in the rough is Cesar Azpilicueta. 
I don't know how, but I, I still really think that he's kind of underrated. I, it's it's a it's a strange feeling because on one hand, you know, I feel like people really accept how kind of really good he is, but it just seems like he just ups his leveled every year, and it takes it to staggering heights. He just gives you an eight out of ten performance every week. Sometimes a ten out of ten. Did you guys know that he started um, seventy four consecutive league ga- league games for Chelsea, wow. including? playing every single minute last season in the title win and all of Antonio Conte's 51 league games. That- and playing at every position and doing so. Yeah, well, that, that, that's that's the thing with Aspilicoso. I think because he doesn't kind of have that conventional English league p- position, he's kind of a jack-of-all-trades. He's um, he, he, he doesn't really find maybe, maybe the praise he kind of deserves because some of the slightly... Slightly thicker pundits can't really tell what he's doing sometimes, but <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, no, I, 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 lo- I love, I love Dave, and he's, um, <laughs> he's, he's honestly great. He's unflashy, isn't he? That, that's why yeah. he does. He, like we were saying about, I'm not saying that Aspilicueta and Ben Mee are comparable because yeah, they're Ben Mee's the next Cesar Aspilicueta. You heard James <laughs> Smith say it on the show. Yeah. Quite they, do, first, yeah. <laughs> they do the basics extremely well. Uh, people go on and on about John Stones because he's like the classic European sense about brings the ball out from the back, looks extremely composed. Everyone loves to see the defender going on and run up front. Aspilicueta is not really that guy. Um, so no. if, you, if you wanted to rave about Aspilicueta, you, you have to say exactly what you said. It's like, gives you 8 out of 10 every week. And you're like, yeah, 8 out of 10. Woo! <laughs> like, it's really yeah. difficult to just hype that up. Yeah, and I agree with you that he's underrated. If you don't think he's the best on-ball defender in the Premier League, then you are currently underrating him. Um, yeah. Yeah, he's just very, very, very good. Um, for Tottenham, uh, it's Moussa Dembele. I mentioned this last season. Um, a lot of people that I respect a whole lot said that Moussa Dembele was the best player at Tottenham. And unfortunately, being relegated to watching on TV uh, the majority of weeks here, uh, was very confused as to how they could hold that opinion. And then just seeing him live, it's honestly incredible. Because you cannot stop Moussa Dembele from doing what he wants to do. Sometimes what he wants to do is flawed. Um, but it, it is just honestly incredible how consistent he plays for us. Uh, like everybody's saying, sevens, sevens and eights out of ten uh, reliably. And I think the reason he doesn't get much love is that he isn't going to get goals or assists. It's just very much not his game. Uh, I remember back when we had uh, Scott Parker, there was an article about how uh, by positional metrics, Scott Parker was better at his job than anyone else in the Premier League was at theirs, uh, which is obviously a, a stretch. Um, but I kind of feel in that vein about Moussa Dembele. There was a pundit over here last week. I can't remember who it was. It might have been Graham Sinus. Mm. Um, he was arguing that Dembele needs to add those goals and assists to his game because he's got so much talent. He couldn't <laughs> understand that he wasn't getting into the box and finishing off moves or putting the ball in the top corner from 25 yards. He, he could probably do that. Do you think that's true or should he just carry on doing his own game? Uh, Has he got those extra sort of levels <laughs> to his game? If he could have done that, he would have stayed as a striker, which was his original <laughs> position. <laughs> um, I think uh, he found a way to, to carve out his own niche uh, throughout his career as being like a very strong box-to-box player. Do we love it when he scored goals? Obviously, there was one against Villa, so was that at least two years ago now? Uh, that still rings in the memory. He scored against Lyon in the Europa League one year um, to, to advance, and it's always fun watching him do it. But I, I think he knows that there are whew, at least five better finishers at the club, and three of them start every week. So odds are that when he's in an advanced position, he's thinking... What's better? What's a better chance for for me to just take this from here, or to lay it off to one of them and have them do something bro- brilliant with it? We talked about it earlier. Del Ali can create something out of nothing. So can Erickson. Obviously, so can Kane. Um, so, could he score more goals? Yes, but I think when it comes down to that decision, every time he has to make it, he's deciding that the the team are probably better off with Kane yeah. or Erickson or Ali taking that shot than him. Yeah, I okay. agree. I think I think the point was partly that. Um, Spurs maybe need to reduce the the reliance on Kane for the goals, and that mm. someone like Dembele can do that. Maybe mix up the attacking play as well, rather than it always seems like you're looking to get the ball to someone who can set Kane up. That seems like the entire sort of game plan, really, mm. at times, which is understandable because he's the best finisher in the Premier League. The finish against West Brom was massively underrated. It's yeah. a brilliant finish. Um, so I totally get why you do that, but 
maybe if someone like Dembele could step up a bit more and contribute goals and assists as well, then maybe you'd be a, a bit less predictable to play against. I think that was the point that was being mm. made. Yeah, no, I think that's a really interesting point. I think the decision there is just, would we rather improve our attack or our defense? And I think Pochettino would always lean a little bit defensively. Um, all right, now we are going to head into match previews. And these matches are obviously going to be coming uh, thick and fast over this winter period. We have matches midweek. Uh, this week, the first one uh, of the representatives on this show is going to be us versus Leicester, or at Leicester, uh, to be more accurate. Leicester have been a, a bit of a mixed bag this season, although I do think they've been better uh, after appointing their new manager, um, Claude Puyle. <clears throat> I think Mares is finally finding his form again. Vardy's finally finding his form again. They're finally playing Demarai Gray, who 19 other clubs in the Premier League thought was good, but Leicester, for some reason, didn't. Uh, I suppose, more specifically, um, <laughs> as their previous manager, that did not in Craig Shakespeare, um, but I think we should be we should be winning this one. Obviously, their statistics kind of like Jamie. You mentioned your defensive statistics being a little wonky because of the the way you play. Similar with Leicester, uh, everybody always points out like how are they scoring goals at such a high rate? They don't have that many chances. It's because they're literally designed to counterattack. So there are fewer overall chances, but the quality of those chances is higher. Um, we have had a few mistakes at the back the past few weeks, which is something that we spent the better part of Pacha's reign getting rid of. Um, entirely possible that Vardy gets on the on the score sheet here, uh, but I'm not really worried about uh, their defense in this one. Although they have been uh, decent at times, um, the Maguire signing I thought was really interesting because in my mind I kind of paired it with the Keane signing because they were pretty much back to back. But you know, Leicester are still a bottom ten defense. Um, you obviously have to worry about Christian Fuchs sometimes because his crossing is, is so good. Uh, the rest of it, not too worried about it, and it seems like. West Morgan is starting to lose his legs a bit, a bit, a little bit, which is impressive considering how old he is. But uh, seems like he's finally hitting that dip that many uh, thought would happen during their title run, and then simply did not. Uh, I think Tottenham will win this one two one. All right, now we're going to come to you, Jamie. You're going to be traveling uh, to Bournemouth to face Eddie Howside. We mentioned earlier, well, it may have been before we started recording, that he was uh, very impressed by Swansea and thought that they were a very well organized side. I can only imagine what he'll think of Burnley then. <laughs> yeah, um, Eddie Howe is one of the managers for me. What he says after the match, it doesn't normally tally up with the match that I've just seen. It's like he's playing <laughs> a bad game of football manager and the squad did not <laughs> respond the way. <laughs> he's just playing it drunk and just clicking whatever to get through the press conference. <laughs> yeah. Get over there, I want to buy players. No comment. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, I think this, this is going to be a really interesting game. Bournemouth are obviously seems to have turned the corner a little bit. Um, after a bit of a dodgy start to the season, obviously there's the the Eddie Howe connection as well. He managed us for like 18 months, I think, before going back to Bournemouth. Um, a lot of fans never really took to Eddie Howe. He didn't he didn't show the passion that they liked to see on the touchline. The football was a bit pedestrian and slow at times while he was trying to to get the possession football. Um, it's not really how Burnley have ever really played, so a lot of people were a bit suspicious of that. A lot of fans like us to be direct, um, so it it didn't seem like a very good fit for a lot of reasons. That said, I really liked Eddie Howe. I could see what he's trying to do. It was a long term view that he had, um, and I think he's shown at Bournemouth that he can implement that over a long period of time. It just it didn't happen at Burnley for a number of reasons. Um, in terms of the game itself, I think it's going to be an interesting challenge. We've had a lot of away games at the top clubs, and we haven't really had. A match like this against a sort of peer, one of the smaller clubs in the league who are doing really well to be in the Premier League at all. Let's be honest, clubs like Birmingham and Bournemouth are punching above their weight as much as I hate that phrase. We are, really. Um, so I think it's a, a good test to see where we're at. Obviously, we're a few places above them in the league. We've been going extremely well. And I think dealing with the the sort of expectation of maybe going to a game like this and people thinking that we should win... I think that's going to be something that we have to get used to as well because Burnley have traditionally thrived on being the underdog. Um, so I think it's, it's going to be really interesting. Bournemouth as well have a lot of pace and attack. We don't always cope with that very well. So we will have to defend quite deep and play on the break ourselves. Um, but the flip side to that is Bournemouth can be quite poor at the back. So it's got the potential to be a really interesting game, this actually. And then at the weekend, we were away to Leicester as well. So... Like you were saying, Leicester, you don't really know what you're going to get from them, although they've been a bit more consistent under Puel since he came in. So 
these two away games, I think, are a really good gauge for where Burnley are at. If we could come away with three points, four would be fantastic. I think that would be a sign that maybe where we are in the table is not as false a position as as everyone, including me, seems to assume. And maybe we can be challenging to be that seventh place team or certainly be looking to finish in the top half at the end Mm. of the season. With the right roll of the dice, seventh could get you Europa League. Just saying. Burnley Could do. <laughs> Burnley fans have been getting carried away talking about going on a European tour, but <laughs> someone's going to finish seventh. Why? Yep. Why? Why not? Yeah. I don't yeah. think there's an outstanding contender to to finish there. You look at the table now, and ourselves and Watford have got a bit of a cushion at the moment. It's early days, but if we can maintain our performance level and keep picking up points and keep surprising people there's no reason why not i think you've got to be ambitious and last season i was talking about us trying to to push on and finish in the top half and we fell away in the second half of the season because we were safe by then i'd really like us to set new targets and recalibrate where we're after this season i know within the club they're still talking about 40 points claudio ranieri was talking about 40 points when leicester won the title so i think that's just what they say (laughs) right so burnley's gonna win the title got it yeah exactly dilly dong (laughs) <laughs> we're only about 20 points behind City so yeah I know we can catch them up um, yeah I hope that targets are being recalibrated because for me it's not unrealistic to say we can finish in the top half agreed uh, and then we'll wrap up Stephen uh, obviously Chelsea are going to be hosting Swansea who uh, have now the worst attack in the Premier League going up against the Chelsea side that is rapidly increase- increasing in defensive uh, confidence every week. You mentioned Christensen's confidence earlier. I assume you think this is going to kind of be an easy day at the park. Yeah, I mean, it all looks set up for that. I think. I think I spoke to a few Swansea fans. I think uh, Tammy Abrams scored seventy percent of their goals, and obviously he's ineligible to play in this game against his um, parent club. So take that out. Um, it it really does look like we we should have a fairly fairly easy day. But you know, obviously in the Premier League, nothing's nothing's set and dry. The one thing I would I would say that we need to worry about is the fact that in this Liverpool game we played a very very defensive midfield setup which was pretty unusual this season we've seen a lot of Fabregas um, but obviously with a lot of games coming up thick and fast we have three games in the space of six days <laughs> coming up which is just going to be insane for a mm. very very small squad um, so it's it's really it's really going to be a test a lot of these guys um, to see Morley, Morley, just just to see how these guys can fill in, like Danny Drinkwater. We saw. Um, I mean, even maybe Ethan Ampadu might have might have to play play some minutes. And um, it's it's really going to be interesting on that front. Victor Moses, I expect to be back from his hamstring injury for the Swansea game, so I'm looking forward to that. Um, looking forward to hopefully might be able to give Marcus Alonso a rest at some point in the coming games because him pretty much being our only fit left wing back is scary when we've got so many games to play um now what i'm about to say next is i okay i i do not think we're in the title race i think that it's it's pretty much set and dry but if there if chelsea fans were looking for you know something to grasp onto there would be some consolation in the fact that our next eight games five of them are at home and basically none of the teams we're playing are higher than i think ninth so it's it, we've got a really good run of games coming up. Um, obviously, it's coming around that kind of Christmas time period, so it's never as easy as it seems. But you know, if we can go in kind of half a run of of last year, then you know the Manchester teams drop some points. As long as we're there, ready to kind of you know latch on to anything, we we could be in there with a shout. It's very faint and very unlikely, obviously. But you know, it's you still you still got to hold hope at this stage in the season. No, nothing's won. Nothing's won in November. So go look forward to that. And but yeah, I'm I'm expecting a win. I'm predicting kind of like a hopefully like a three nil, four nil kind of win. I'm I'm really hoping that we show show strength coming into coming into this game. We've got to attack them. Swansea haven't got an away point since uh since Tottenham actually in September. So uh. yeah, <laughs> things looking good. <laughs> yeah. Uh. <laughs> That is not a stat I wanted to end the show on, but there you are. Uh, if you guys would like to tell folks where they could reach you or any projects you're working on, now would be a good time. Yep, I've been Jamie Smith. You can follow me on Twitter at Jamie Smith with Fs instead of a TH because I can't spell my own name. Um, I cover Burnley Football Club. You can read my stuff in various places, mostly 442, ESPN, MSN. 
etc. Yeah, guys, uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Stephen Clark CFC, um, and you can also read a lot of my opinions on the Premier League and Chelsea Football Club on uh, London is Blue, the website there, and also been writing recently for EPL Index. So yeah, look forward to writing some more stuff and probably writing a piece on Ruben Loftus Cheek soon. So keep your eyes out for that. Yeah, and I'm your host, Kevin DeVries. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Kevroff, and I write about fantasy football for Goal.com, so be sure to check that out under the gaming tab. Uh, we'll also be having so many episodes out today as you're listening to this. Uh, there will also be a new uh, fantasy episode recapping this week and previewing the next one, which, despite them being called Match Weeks, is match two days away. Um, and uh, we'll also do some DFS content for VIPBet.com, so be sure to check that out as well if you're interested in fantasy sports. All right, thanks so much for joining us, guys. It was a pleasure as always. We hope you keep listening. Mm-hmm.